Testaments, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 21. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Take your seats. Thanks, Leo. Well, a warm welcome to any of you who may be new joining us for the first time. Uh, We've been taking most of this year to walk through Matthew's gospel And today will be the final sermon in Matthew for a little while. Next week, as John mentioned, we're going to take a break for Advent. Then in the new year, we're going to look at a topical series for January and February before coming back into Matthew as we head into Lent. So just a little bit of preview on where we're going. And so this passage in Matthew is really important. In fact, most of Matthew, you could argue, has been building up to this point. And in this passage, we see Peter make a confession, a confession. And when you hear the word confession, you may think, you know, similar to what we did earlier in the worship service. We confess our sin, the way we haven't loved God and neighbor. Or you may think of a confession as it's something only people do if they're involved in institutional religion. But a confession really is, it's any conviction that you have that shapes how you live. And so in that sense, everybody has a confession. So this past week, around the Thanksgiving dinner table I was a part of, a debate broke out between those who confess that Christmas decorations and music should only come out after the Thanksgiving meal, and those who confess that it should come out as early as you well please, right? Just feed the machine of capitalistic greed, and you can tell which side I was on, right? And people felt very strongly about their confessions. We just had a men's gathering the other night, and At the men's gathering, I realized that some people in our church confess that episodes one, two, three in Star Wars are better than four, five, and six. I had no idea such blasphemy was in our midst. Okay, so some of these confessions, they're they're fun to debate, but other confessions, which are not so fun to debate around, or depending on your personality, they're not as fun to debate, but they're far more important. So a confession such as, uh, what do you confess about the nature of reality? Uh, what do you confess about the nature of human beings? Are human beings self-created and self-defined? Or are they defined by something or someone outside of themselves? What do you confess about where history is going? And so you see, no matter how non-religious you may think you are, every person has confessions about ultimate things that are religious in nature because they require some element of faith to believe and they shape how you live. And so what we're going to look in today's passage, it's so important and practical, is 
What is the most important confession for a church to hold to? Okay, so us as a church, corporately and individually, there are lots of confessions. I believe, ABC, there are lots of confessions we can hold to, but what is the singular most important thing we can hold to? Okay, and so we'll look at it under these three headings. I really hope my voice makes it through this. Um, we'll look at it through these three ways. So first, number one, the, the confession of the church. Number two, what difference does it make in our lives? And then number three, in light of this confession and this difference, how does the church go forward? Okay, so first, what is this confession of the church that's so important? Number two, what difference does it make in our lives when we hold to this confession? Number three, in light of these things, how does the church go forward? Okay, all right, so first, number one, <clears throat> what is the church's confession? We'll start here in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is a term Jesus used to refer to himself. And so here they're in Caesarea Philippi. This is a region on the northernmost tip of Israel. It's 150 miles north of Jerusalem, a full day's walk from Jesus' hometown. So he's taking his disciples on a field trip. And in Caesarea Philippi, because it, it's where Israel collides with pagan territory, and if you could please bring up the photo. So you can see this is a, a real time and place. And this is a, a hub for spiritual activity. So you can see all those little inlets, indents in the walls. So these are our shrines where worship would take place. Um, up here in the front, temples were all along this row. So there was a temple to Caesar, uh, hence the name Caesarea Philippi. So they worship Caesar as a god, or put another way, they worship power. Uh, there are also statue, uh, graphic statues of gods having sex with one another. I discovered this in my research, um, and child sacrifice took place in this region. And so part of why Matthew is pointing this out, that Jesus takes his disciples here to Caesarea Philippi, is to show he, he's not training his apprentices isolated. You know, it's not like he's in these idyllic green pastures, isolated from the grit of real life. Okay, but no, he's taking them to in the midst of what life is actually like, a worship of power, worship of sex, same things we deify today, among many other gods. And he chooses this location to ask his disciples about his identity and the kind of church he's building. I think there's, hmm, there seems to be something deliberate about this. Okay, so this is the scene. <clears throat> and then he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they, that's his disciples, say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now what all three of these individuals have in common, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Elijah, are, is they're all respectable, influential prophets. And so the disciples are saying, well, the, people, the people's consensus is that you're in a line with many other great prophets. And this answer is, pretty similar to what you hear today. If you ask many people, who do you say Jesus is? Maybe this is you here today. Who do you say Jesus is? Often an answer you get is something to the effect of, he's a respectable, very influential person. He's in a row with many other good people, right? He's, in a, he's, a, he's a good person in a row with many other good people. But Jesus now, he's not really concerned what other people think. He turns to his disciples and says, but who do you say I am? So now he wants to make it personal, so there's a big difference, going back to Thanksgiving dinner table, there's a big difference at a Thanksgiving meal if you guys are, if you're just talking about the presidential election 
right? Like in, in the theory, but then somebody at the table looks at you and says, well, who did you vote for this election? You know, suddenly you may feel a lot of tension, right? Um, you, you now need to do self-examination, right? Who did I vote for or not vote for and why? You're going to feel exposed right? as you tell people who you voted for. So Jesus, he wants his disciples to take this seriously and say, who do you say I am? And Peter, in a moment of beautiful clarity, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, the Christ, I didn't know this for a long time, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. So he's not like he's Mr. Christ. Okay, but Christ is a title. And Christ refers, Christ means king or Messiah or for first century Jewish individuals, I mean, this was the one through whom all the Old Testament promises are going to be fulfilled. The Christ is the one through whom God is going to use to make heaven intersect with earth. Uh, The Christ is the only hope for humanity and the very meaning of life. So this is what Peter means when he says, you are the Christ. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're right. I am the Christ. And this is, like to put this in perspective, this isn't even as, this is far more extreme than say you're in college and you show up to, you sign up for a class and you show up on the first day of class. And on the first day of class, your teacher gets up on a table, stands up and he says, the most important thing that you're going to do throughout this class, this semester, the most important thing you're going to study is me. Okay, it's not the math or the political science or the literature you're going to learn about. The most important thing is me. There's never been a time that I haven't existed. I'm the, I'm the very meaning of life, and your life is meaningless and hopeless without me. Okay, but that's what Jesus is saying by saying, I am the Christ. And so in, in emphatic terms, he's saying, I'm not in a row with every other good person in history. Okay, I'm not one spiritual option among many good spiritual options. I am the Christ, the very meaning of life and the hope for humanity. And as, as one commentator put it, so, because, so this is the confession of the church, that the answer to the question, who do, people, who do you say that I am, is you are the Christ. And one commentator says this. He writes, it is where this confession, you are the Christ, is gladly believed with the heart and so confessed with the mouth that a church arises and lives. It's so good. Okay, so in other words, a church, amid all of its imperfections, which are many, a church is not made of people who get everything right. The church is made up of people who get one thing right. You're the Christ. And this confession Peter gives, this is the spark that ignites and guides the church until here we are today. Okay, so that is the confession of the church. The, the main confession we need to hold to, you are the Christ. So now let's get more practical. All right, come on, Pastor, let, let's get practical. What, what does this mean for our lives? So let's talk about this. How does this affect us on the ground corporately and individually, personally? And if we go back to think about what is a confession, a, conviction, a, con, a confession is a conviction you have that shapes how you live. <clears throat> When a church gathers and you walk into church, when we make, when we fail to make what's central central, and instead we bring in peripheral things and make them central, the church is either steered off course or you become disillusioned with the church. And this is why it's so important why we keep this as our main confession. So here's some examples. So here are some confessions we can walk in here with, and some of these are just subconscious. You may not even realize they're happening and just consider some of the effects. So I confess that the church needs to align with my political beliefs. 
All right, when this is the main confession I walk in with, now the conversation around the church devolves into a diluted political theology rather than resurrection theology. And we as a church, we miss our opportunity to be a prophetic witness to a better king, a better kingdom, a king who confounds the party lines that we have, a king who isn't of this world but has come into this world for its transformation and healing. Okay, so that's why our main confession must be you are the Christ. He is our primary allegiance. Jesus doesn't vote Republican or Democrat. Jesus votes with himself. Okay. Second, what if I walk in and I'm thinking, I confess the church exists to produce moral outcomes or create better people. Now what happens when I experience hypocrisy in the church or sinfulness and imperfections in its leaders and in its people? And I will. Okay, so now when I experience these things, if I think the main role of the church is to produce these really good people, now I'm going to either leave or stand back with my arms crossed and just critique everything that other people are doing wrong rather than getting my hands dirty and entering in to help make the bride of Jesus whom he loves the person that he's making her to be and to practice the often inefficient and unwieldy practices of forgiveness and reconciliation, and sacrificial love. What about this one? When I, when I confess that the church exists to soothe my anxiety, what happens when Jesus forces me to face things about reality that make me uncomfortable? Or somebody in the church points out something about my life that I need to change, and that makes me uncomfortable. Or Jesus asks me to be in relationship with people who require painful levels of patience and kindness. You see how subtle but important this is? So while, while the church should encourage its members to think wisely about politics, and it should affirm the things in each political party that echo the kingdom of God, and the church, yes, it should produce people who become more moral over time, often happens more slowly than we would wish. And yes, the church should help its members navigate the realities of anxiety or depression, the church can and should do those things, but notice none of, these things, uh, none of these three things require Jesus to be Lord or for the resurrection to be true. And so what makes the church uniquely the church is that when we gather here on Sunday and we gather around tables throughout the week, is it's uniquely the church where in the midst of a world captured by lies, the church is the only place where we tell the truth about the world, that Jesus is the Christ, the only one who's come to defeat death and to tell us how to live until he makes all things new okay, that's what happens when we make what should be the central confession it's confession and it's beautiful for us and it's beautiful for those who don't know jesus okay so that's how it can affect things corporately now what about what about personally what i love about this is when jesus looks at his disciples he says but who do you say that i am by getting personal, he's inviting, I mean, just imagine you being in front of Jesus and him asking you this question. Should you answer you are the Christ, the son of the living God? As soon as you confess that, the truest thing about you becomes not your relation to yourself, but your relationship to him. And so here's an example of how that can play out. So uh, one of the things that I, I love about the children that I have and the wife that I have 
is there are Sundays where I feel like I just that sermon just fell flat. I maybe I made contact with the ball, <laughs> like barely. Okay, or I I feel like I blow it in a counseling session or a conversation with a church member. And I feel pretty down about that. As soon as I walk in the door and my children run to hug me and Kelsey looks at me with a smile and says, I'm so glad you're home. I love you. Now all these other things that are important suddenly become a distant second because what is now defining me more than my performance or what I think about myself, it's my relation to my children or my wife. And you don't need to be married to experience this reality. I've experienced similar amazing uh, experiences of being known and loved by dear friends of mine. And how much more with Jesus? When you tell you are the, uh, immediately he enters into a, a love relationship with you with unbreakable commitment. Where now what is most true about you, it's not the question, who do I say that I am? Right? In a world frantically searching for who am I? Right? But it's, it's who's Jesus and who am I in relationship to him? And so this is why, like, we've been, we saw last, in the last passage of Matthew, the most important thing about Christianity, it's Jesus himself. And so this is why when I, when I pray for my children to come to saving faith, for example, I pray for them to come to saving faith not so they can get the answer right or be successful or avoid pain or even avoid hell. I, I pray for them to come to saving faith so that they will know Jesus. Okay, to see with their mind and feel in their heart the kindness of his face, the gentleness of his hands and his skills he shapes and guides and corrects them, the power of his words, the relief of his presence, the deep joy of knowing and being known by him, how he loves them unlike anyone else or anything can, and his absolute promise to wipe away everything sad and evil in their lives. And I pray the same thing for you guys. Because this is what happens when we know Jesus as the Christ. Okay, so these are just some of the differences. This is basically all of life, as Jesus is the Christ. These are just some of the differences and how it plays out in our lives. Okay, so now number three, and In light of these things, this confession, these incredible differences, how does the church go forward? And we see this in the back half of this passage. So let's read verse 18 and 19. So this is Jesus in response to Peter's answer and him affirming it. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, referring to Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So here he is telling you, the Christ-pointing Peter, are the first stone of the global multi-ethnic church that I'm building. And so now we ask, okay, how does, we have to ask the questions, how does this church go forward that Jesus is building on top of Peter's confession? And we, look, we can look at it by asking first, okay, who's, who's the builder, what's the means, and what's its shape? So first, who's the builder of the church? So look, while Jesus is the rock upon which the church is built, Peter isn't the builder. Okay, people aren't the builder. Who, who's the builder? It says, 
I will build my church in the middle of verse 18. So God is the builder of the church. And this should give us confidence and a sigh of relief. No matter how dismal things in the church can feel or look, our hope rests in the fact that the strength of the church is not found in ourselves, but it's in Jesus who can build his church, who is building his church. It gives the leaders in this church Uh, We don't have to feel so fragile and reactive when we remember this church doesn't belong to us. This is really important, but it belongs to Jesus. And all of us as members in the church have more motivation to invest in the church when we know the church will not fail because Jesus is building it. So God is the builder. What's the means by which he builds it, though? And so this is where we we see uh, him tell Peter that he's going to give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is strange and mysterious language, especially to to modern ears, but, and there's lots of debate surrounding what he's getting at here, especially between Roman Catholics and Protestants, if you're familiar with that. But the point, regardless, is when he tells Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, so the keys of the kingdom is the preaching of the gospel, When you preach the gospel or point people to Jesus, you fling open wide the gates to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, the gates are swung open to life, and anyone who wishes, anyone, right, who wishes can receive Jesus' offer of grace, deny themselves, and follow him. And then he, he tells Peter, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and then this language of loosing. So to bind is to forbid, and to loose is to permit. So in other words, when you... Point people to Jesus, opening wide the, the doors through the keys. You're, you're loosing, you're permitting people to walk in, right, should they want to receive life to the fullest in Jesus' name. But also it serves as a warning of judgment, right, for those who want to reject Christ's offer of life. That's what he means by binding or forbidding. So it's not like humanity, like, it's not like Peter or any church leader has the power to say, you know Jesus and you don't know Jesus, right? But this is what happens as the preaching of the gospel goes, goes forward. And so, in other words, how does Jesus build? Yes, he's the builder, but what's the ordinary means by which Jesus builds his church? It's through people. Often failing, yes. Often sinning, yes. Loved by Jesus, yes. Okay, so it's, it's working through people that Jesus builds his church. And then number three, what is the, what's the shape of the church? Okay, like what should the church feel like? How does it go forward? And this is why we included, I mean, your Bible probably breaks up the passage with a heading, but it's all, it's all just one, one story. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So when Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, and we'll see this in the next passage, what Peter, he gets the title right. But he's still in error with how the Christ is going to save his people and build his church. Peter thinks, like pretty much anybody, when someone's going to build a new kingdom, they're going to do it through power and subduing enemies. And, but Jesus is now correcting him. He's saying, no, how I as the Christ am going to build my church is you'll eventually see Peter is by being nailed to a block of wood and not subduing my enemies, but forgiving them and forgiving you so that you can have free life in my name. And so because this is how Jesus, Jesus is the real spark that builds his church, because Jesus builds his church through enemy love, right, and cross-shaped love, this is how the church needs to go forward. And so as I I was thinking about this, 
these three things, Jesus builds the church through people, but cruciform love being the shape. You know, I was struck by this comment Jesus makes, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. A better translation is the gates of Hades or the gates of death. The gates of death will not prevail, prevail against. And this is, this is offensive language. This isn't the, the, the church like trying to hold back, but it's, it's the church, right, going on the offensive against the gates of death and the gates of death, the most powerful force in the world, right, can't do anything to stop it as Jesus builds his church. And I think as, depending on your temperament or your upbringing, you can read this, okay, yeah, like the, the gates of death aren't going to prevail against the church. And it's easy to get a triumphalist sense of the church going forward, right? So like God smiting my political enemies through force or, you know, giant revivals where every week thousands of people are coming to saving faith. And as we've seen repeatedly through Matthew and are going to keep saying uh, the church is, the, the kingdom of God does not go forward through political power as important as politics can be. And while revivals can and do happen, it happened with Peter, right? Peter did play an important role as, as the rock where in Acts 2, right? Giant revival, thousands of people coming to saving faith. And we continue to see revivals today. Many, and we, we, should, we should pray for these things. I, I think the most common way the church goes forward and the gates of death not prevailing against the church, it's much quieter. And it happens when a group of people, right, scattered in local churches all throughout the world, have confessed Jesus as the Christ and come to this personal being known by him that we talked about. And out of this show cruciform love to those around them, regardless of if they think they deserve it or not. And through this, unbelievers come to faith and Christians are persevered. And I think about some examples of my own life of this playing out. I think of a dear friend of mine who in undergrad and grad school wasn't a Christian. And Two of his friends, their names are Jake and Amber, they, they deserve their names to be heard. They helped lead this man to faith because for six years they put up with his, and he would say this, just him being mean and mocking their faith and they continued to be gentle and to love him and to challenge him appropriately until now he, he knows Jesus. I think about something no one would have ever seen unless I'm sharing it right now. I think about a few years ago when I was in one of the most confusing and painful situations of my life. And I have a friend, Dr. Paul John. Some of you know him. He's a, he's a father of three, pastor of a busy church. He's a seminary professor, travels up to New York City every week, packed schedule. I just called him because I didn't know where else to turn. And he just, he dropped everything. He said, where are you? Let me get you lunch. And he gave me hope to just get through another month. I think about a story I heard from Tyler Staten. He wrote the book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. It's on our bookshelf out there. And he, he tells this story of, I think it was a few years ago, his infant son had received a life-threatening heart diagnosis. And the odds were not good. His, his little boy needed three open-heart surgeries and everything had to go perfectly for his child to live. And even then, it was going to be really complicated. So he said, I'm there with my boy as he's on the, the wheelie thing. It's called a gurney. Or, on the wheelie thing. And he's about to be wheeled off in the surgery room. And I'm praying the Psalms over him just through tears. Utterly helpless. And after my, my boy gets wheeled off, I don't know if I'm going to see him again. 
I just, in a pain-filled stupor, I walk out of the hospital just to take a walk. And I walk out of the doors, and I almost run into a friend from my church named Brian. He's like, Brian, what, what are you doing here? And Brian just says, oh, well, I, I knew this was the, the big day for your son. And so I'm walking around the hospital seven times like Jericho, just praying for him and for your family. And Tyler says, <laughs> he was like, in that moment, I saw the face of the God who promises to not only be with me in green pastures, but equally with me when I'm in the valley of shadow. And he asks, was the glory of Christ prevailing against the gates of death, right? Which, which is, which, in which situation do you see the glory of, of the Lord displayed more? Is it in the healing of my son, which did happen, right? It doesn't happen to everybody. Is it in the healing of a young child when his parents are helpless? Or is the glory of the Lord and the power of Jesus prevailing against the gates of death also as visible in the Jericho-filled prayers of a friend? Who would in these prayers would have gone completely unseen and unknown had Tyler not walked out, right, and run into him. And so when, when you confess you are the Christ, and out of that personal knowing and being known by Jesus, just perform often hard, unseen acts of cruciform love, that maybe only God will see, and you pray for Jesus who builds his church to do a miracle to keep the darkness at bay in someone's life, he will, and he'll keep building his church. Let's pray.